Well, welcome everyone. My name is Tommy Martinson, lead pastor here. So glad that you're with us. Um, we, like I said earlier, we had a little tech issue. We had a couple tech issues actually this morning, but we're just plowing through. So if, if there is a little bit of a funny thing up on the screen, we're going to roll with it. It's how we do it around here. So um, let's go ahead and pray as we jump into the message. Jesus, I thank you for this, this time in our lives, even in this Advent season that's starting, that it is an active waiting upon you, that we can actually identify with the nation of Israel and we can, we can see in the different ways that we are waiting on you, we're looking to your promises, and we're looking ahead with magnificent hope. And so would you move in this time, in Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right. So guys, um, I'm usually not someone in a church environment that spends weeks leading up to Christmas, but it is a new year for us. It, there's, a, there's a special grace on Christmas this year. I have four Sundays of preaching before we break for Christmas, and I was feeling like the Lord actually wanted me to take us on a journey of Advent. Advent means arrival. It's a time of the year that we intentionally look back to the first coming of Jesus as a child born in Bethlehem, and we identify with the waiting of the nation of Israel they were longing for the Messiah who was going to be born. They waited for generations. And then finally seeing the kingdom of God come through the person Jesus, through his birth and his life. Yet we also look forward as we wait for the second coming of Jesus when he will return and he will renew and redeem all of creation. So that's in summary what Advent is. It's the waiting. It's looking upon the, the promises of God and meditating on those as we anticipate that he will fulfill those promises. Advent is a remembering and it's a rejoicing. So I want to start off with a little story. When, when young Tommy was just seven years old, I was a good Christian boy. And what I wanted for my birthday was a Bible. That, can it get any better than that? Just patting myself on the back right now. So I was seven years old. I had received Jesus. I wasn't even four yet, okay? So I had lived a long walk with Jesus by age seven. The Lord did mighty works in my life. And so I was ready to graduate from the, the Adventure Bible, all the little cartoons on the pages. Some of you are still there, that's okay. And I graduated to a new international version. We went to the Baptist bookstore in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I picked out an NIV Bible that was heavy. And I put it, some of you like this. Do you guys have those protective cover carrying cases? Does anyone have a protective carrying case with them this morning? Raise it high like you would in a sword drill. I saw a hand somewhere. Oh, do we got one? It's okay. It's okay. I kind of miss those. You'd stuff, you know, the, the sermon in your notes, and you'd take notes, and then you'd see it five years later. You know how that works? But this was exciting to me. And so 
I got my, my Bible with my red carrying case, and I was in the car with my mom. We go to the bank, and I open it up to Matthew, because I'm like, I'm going to read the Gospels, the good news. And so I open it up to Matthew, so excited to, to venture into the stories of miracles and the life of Jesus. And then I started reading, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and the list went on. And I remember thinking to myself at seven years old, this isn't the most captivating start to the gospel message. What's going on with that, God? What's going on with this list of names that mean nothing to me? So I was kind of disappointed, kind of exhausted trying to read all of these names that are hard to pronounce. And I remember thinking, this is kind of a boring way to tell the greatest story ever told. And so I want to start this Advent season by looking through some of the passages of the book of Matthew. And I'm preaching today on a moderately important character in scripture. You may know his name, Jesus the Christ. And so my sermon is titled, Jesus, Divine and Human. Let's begin in Matthew 1. We're going to quickly look at that ravishing genealogy and ask, what does the genealogy of Jesus teach us and why is it important? So we're just going to look at a portion of it. We're not going to spend 30 minutes reading through the genealogy. So let's go ahead and put up on the screen Matthew chapter 1. This is a condensed version. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. It's a good shortened version, right? More digestible for the people. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. All right, you guys woke up this morning and you said, I can't wait to get to church to talk about the genealogies. I know that was first on your thoughts this morning. Well, that's what we're venturing into this morning. There are two main things that we can read from in genealogy here. If you are like seven-year-old Tommy, you kind of start to tune out, your eyes start to glaze over, and you're like, can we get to some of the miracles of Jesus? Something real quick out of this place. But the genealogy is actually very important to us, and it teaches us two primary things. First, it teaches us that the gospel is good news. It's not just good advice. Matthew didn't begin the gospel like a fairy tale. Did you notice that? He didn't start, once upon a time, there was a sweet virgin named Mary. It intentionally doesn't begin in a story format. He starts with a genealogy, especially to his main audience, which would have been the Jewish people. And he wanted to bring them into a confidence that he's saying, hey, this is your history. And this that I'm about to tell you is history. 
there are so many who look at the Christmas story and the life of Jesus and say, you know, I don't know if this all really happened. The doctrine doesn't really matter. We should just take the morals that we see in the life of Jesus and apply it to our lives to be good people. You know, he was a really good example to us. They say, doctrine doesn't really matter. Let's just, let's just get along. Let's live a good life. But you know, that actually is a doctrine. It's the doctrine of justification by works. It's a belief that it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you live a good life. But for those who believe that God's happiness towards you or your way to heaven is by your own good life, you're going to turn into one or two of this kind of person. First, you might become a person who becomes extremely proud, thinking that you're better than everyone else, that no one else can live up to your standards, or B, you're going to be living under the weight of your own guilt, and it's never going to be satisfied. Jesus didn't come to earth just to show us some good moral principles. He actually came to save us. He died to cleanse us of our sins so that God could forgive us, so that the penalty of our sins could be placed on him and washed away. If Jesus didn't actually live on this earth, you can't be saved by grace. You'll have to perform with your own works and your duties and your good morals and save yourself, but that is not a path to eternal life. And so the genealogy says right off the bat, the gospel is good news, not just good advice on how to live. It's saying you don't have to save yourself by good works. There is a God who can save you by his grace. Number two, the, the second main purpose of the gene genealogy is this. The genealogy reveals that the gospel turns the values of the world upside down. When we read this genealogy, we can glance over it and think, hmm, this is, this is quite interesting. Interesting names, pronunciations, and then we move on. But in biblical days, this would have been their family resume. The generations, family, that was everything to them. So when you'd give your resume to people, you'd brag about your family lineage. Oh yes, my, my great, 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 great grandfather was a prophet of Israel, changing the tide of the nation. There was a pride in your family lineage. But it was very common to omit in your family lineage the individuals who were not respectable. Those who were immoral, causing issues. You'd kind of give a highlight reel of, these are, these are the good guys in my family line, and have a pride in that. But look at the change in this genealogy and how this would have been controversial at the time for the readers. In this genealogy, you have four women who are mentioned. In these patriarchal times, it was always father to son, father to son, father to son. Women were almost never mentioned. But here we have four women who are mentioned, and not just any women. Let's look at who they are. We have Tamar. Did you know that Tamar committed incest? Rahab. Well, Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth. She was a Moabite. She wasn't a Jewish woman. 
And then we have Uriah's wife, who of course was Bathsheba, who was married to Uriah, who David committed adultery with and murdered Uriah. So why would these women be included in the genealogy? Here's why. The genealogy that opens up the entire New Testament is a genealogy of grace. Some might be ashamed of such immoral people named in their family line, especially if it's meant to be the perfect king of kings. Here's the Lord of Lords genealogy. Here he is coming to earth. But Jesus, Jesus is not ashamed of these people. These were his mothers, mothers of his faith and his family. In some cases, they were Gentiles, not Jews. Some of these men and women were quite immoral. But by grace, Jesus is saying, anyone can be a member of my family. Anyone. You aren't accepted into my family by your status, by how honorable you are. You are saved and invited into the family by grace. It's a pastor named Tim Keller out of New York City. Got a lot of great inspiration. He, he does incredible teaching about this. And, he, and I want to put up this quote. There is no sin so small that it doesn't deserve condemnation. But there's no sin so great that it can bring condemnation to those who repent. You see, the gospel turns the world's values upside down. It doesn't matter what kind of life you lived previously. I mean, look to the example of the thief on the cross. Here Jesus is, is nailed to the cross. He's dying by suffocating. And here he has a man to his right and to his left. And he looks to this thief dying on the cross who deserved to die. And the thief looked over to him and his heart was postured to looking at Jesus to be the one that saves him, to be his Lord, to be his king. And in the last breaths of his life, he gave his heart to Jesus. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That is called grace extended to another individual. He wasn't about the thief on the cross living a good enough life. Who knows what kind of story his life played out. I'm sure it wasn't one of great morals. But that is the grace of God extended to us radically that brings transformation into eternity. No matter your past or your present, the gospel is dripping with grace on every page, crying out that you are fully loved and can be a member of the family of God if you turn to him. Now I want to look a little further in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Getting into the story. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, he planned to send her away secretly. 
But when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet that it would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translates God with us. Now the main theme of this passage, the main emphasis, is that Jesus is both divine and he's human. He is fully God and fully human. He has a human mother, Mary, So he's biologically, on his mother's side, a human being. But on the other side, he has a divine father. And what is in her is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And his name is Emmanuel, God with us. So he's God. He's divine. He's, if we look at the phrase, God with us, he's God, he's divine. Us, he is human and with. He is divine and human at once. He is Emmanuel, God with us. This is the doctrine of incarnation, and that's what we celebrate every year at Christmas. So what does this mean to us? I'd like to propose four main implications that Jesus is fully God and fully human. But I I want us to look what that means to us and how that changes how we live and, and go about our lives. So let's look at four practical implications of the incarnation. Number one, the reason this is important is because that he is God, there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus Christ. There is no middle way. When we follow Jesus, we are accepting him as our God. You're either completely for him or you're totally against him. If he was just claiming to be a prophet or a man with a high God consciousness or something like that, you might listen and be inspired by his good teachings. But the moment that he starts teaching truths that are are full of life and power and releasing the anointing of the Holy Spirit into settings, he claims to be God. And when he claims to be God, you have one of two choices. You can either fall down at his feet and give him your entire life, or you can choose to run away from him in anger, fear, think he's demonized, or think he's a lunatic. But that's exactly the response in scripture. No one's just sitting in that audience and responding, wow, these are some really good points this this man from Nazareth is giving to us. I'm so glad that we came here on a family picnic today to listen. I've got some great points to take home to mull over this week. No, they either threw themselves at his feet or they tried to stone him to death. But today, we live in a society where most people call themselves Christians, but they clearly don't understand this because there's really no such thing as being moderately Christian. If we really got a revelation of his lordship, 
of his divinity, if you really got that, you too would either throw yourself down at the feet of Jesus and do everything in your life centered on him, or you shouldn't have done, or shouldn't do anything at all. Any other behavior is completely inconsistent. And yet most people in this country who name the name of Christ, they're somewhere in this watered down middle. And perhaps it's time for a fresh revelation of the fear of the Lord, a revelation of the Lordship of Jesus. And in that place, we get to make a bold decision to fall at his feet and to choose him. So number one, because he's God, there's no middle ground. Number two, because he's God, there's no fearing the future. You see, the God that Jesus is, is not a God of dualism. Dualistic philosophies and worldviews believe there are two principles out there. There's a, a good principle and a bad principle, and somehow they equally are powerful and are at war with each other. You can think of Star Wars, and there's the, the force, there's the dark side of the force, the good side. There's this belief that the good and bad are somehow equally powerful. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the, God of the Bible is om omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's completely in charge, and nothing can stand against him. This means there's a radical hope available for anyone in this world. No matter your flaws, your fears, your failures, there is an eternal hope for you. God can rescue you now from your sin and your failures, but eternally there will be no more tears and pain as the Lord of love has the final victory. Because he's God, there's all the hope in the world. And so, because Jesus is God, there's no middle ground. Because he's God, there's no fearing the future. And there's all the hope in the world. And number three, because he's human, he understands. Because he's human, he understands. That means we can go to him. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. He's not a God that's up there looking down saying, why can't you get this all together? Of course he's a God that, that desires our extreme obedience. But he knows and he understands what it's like. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be in pain and what it's like to be a victim of injustice. He knows what it's like. And so whatever you're going through, he knows just what it's like. He understands. And we can draw near to him in his compassion and get help and mercy in our time of need. And number four, because he's human, we can be saved. You can look at this and say, why did Jesus become human? And I believe the answer is found in Jesus' complete holiness and his complete love. It's both his holiness and his love. If Jesus was a completely holy God, 
but was not fully loving? Why would he have to come and empty himself of his glory and come to earth and experience all of this? And if he was just a holy, just God, but not a loving God, he never would have become human. But if he was only just this loving God without the holiness, and sometimes we like to think about Jesus like this, everyone's accepted, it doesn't matter, you don't need to believe, just I'm a loving God. Some of us want to see Jesus that way. We've, we've rejected the holiness of Jesus. But a holy God that knows that sin must be punished, but only a loving God that says, I need to punish sin in a way that I can still love and forgive my people. Only a God like that that is holy and loving would have become human. And that's why he did it. So that a holy God could satisfy justice and at the same time open up his arms to us. If he wasn't human, we just couldn't be saved. He looked into the world, he saw the brokenness, he saw the death and destruction and the hurt, and he cared so much that he wrote himself into the story to save us and redeem us. So maybe one of these four elements spoke to you, that there's no middle ground, no fear of the future, that he actually has compassion and understands, and that he's a saving God. For me, I know that I personally am burning with a desire to live life less in the middle ground state. I am becoming more and more dissatisfied with any kind of watering down of my faith in my relationship with God. I do not want to be someone that is a lukewarm believer. And I've started actually looking at my life where I've, I've begun to turn on areas of the cold water, mixing it with the hot water. And I'm looking at it with the Holy Spirit and saying, why, why am I turning on this cold water? Why am I blending my heavenly perspective with the ways and thinkings of this world? Why am I pausing in moments and rather than turning to God, I try to reason out how I should be in a situation? Why am I going about my days and, and say, I'll, I'll, I'll get to my time with the Lord. I'll get to it. I've got all these other important things I need to do. And by the time I get in bed, I start to snooze off because, oh, I had good intentions, but I'm really tired. I've got a lot to do tomorrow. Where have, where have I begun to, to water down or turn on the cold water in my life? It's, it's not about feeling condemnation, because we talked about that. There's now no condemnation now for those in Christ Jesus. But it's actually looking at our own life with the lens of grace. Because even in those moments where we feel like we're not doing enough, where we've compromised, 
Do you know those are the exact areas we need the empowerment of God's grace? That is a working of the Holy Spirit. He knows. He knows what it's like to be busy. He knows what it's like to go through a dry season. He understands. He made us. He wired us. And so it's about attaching to the Holy Spirit and saying, hey, I'm done compromising. I'm done compromising in my life. I actually want to be someone that is set aflame. Return me to my first love. Return me to my first love. He is my God. He is my everything. Let me fall at his feet once again. Where have I lost the awe and the wonder and majesty of Jesus in my life? And Holy Spirit, would you bring me back to that place looking at Jesus with awe and wonder. He is my God. There's areas of my life that I still have anxiety. Marriage, family, kids. Sometimes I feel like I can hear the ticking clock. And some of you can identify with this either in your relationships, in your career, what you're trying to accomplish. You're like, man, there's just not enough time. I feel out of control. Yeah. And that brings anxiety. Did you know that the remedy to anxiety is trust? If you're having stress, crippling fear and anxiety in your life, connect the Lord in radical trust. It's because you're, you're putting timing and control in, in your own control rather than not fully understanding and in the mystery, giving over to the Lord in trust. I still have moments in my life that I feel alone and question if God understands my frustrations and my hurts and my pains, my griefs. But we have a God who is fully God and fully man. And a God who is actively involved in every thought and emotion that we go through drenching with his grace and his compassion. So I want to ask us this morning, where do we need to let this truth of who Jesus is touch our lives? Where are we needing God's grace to meet us and bring us healing in our lives? I think we can find healing, empowerment, boldness, faith, we can feel a fresh wind within us as we look to the Lordship of Jesus and know that he is fully God and fully man. It's because we know his compassion, his love, his holiness, and we start to posture ourselves in alignment out of a place of trust, knowing, I feel like I can't do this. I'm feeling so small in this moment. I feel disqualified. I feel like I'm just a man trying to do my best. And he says, good, just fall at my feet once again. Let me place my hands upon you, son. Let me speak my words of life and affirmation over you. And let me remind you that I am Emmanuel. I am the God that is with you. Let's go ahead and stand up.
Would you guys go ahead and put your hands over your hearts this morning? You know what the Lord's bringing to mind right now? I've been reading through Acts, which is just like a very envisioning book of scripture. And uh, it gives us just a perspective of how the early church was moving in God's power, in community, and just seeing this wildfire of God lighting up people and, and scattering through the world. And what was, was standing out to me were the ways that so many were added to the number of believers. And you can look at the different sermons that the apostles would preach. And you know, nowadays we're very accustomed to raise your hand if you want to receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Repeat this prayer after me. You know that there's actually, I don't believe there's anything wrong with that. But I think that there's something in it that makes us feel like we're getting a ticket. And this ticket eases my guilt for a second. Because I, I think, oh, he washed away everything I've done wrong and I'm going to heaven one day. This is great. Sure, I'll say a prayer. But there's something in there, in scripture, about the following of Jesus. And there's something about the following of Jesus that I believe the Lord is highlighting in this season. Because it's not so much about being this moderate Christian. Yes, I've lifted my hand to receive Jesus. I was baptized once. It is about giving up your entire life to follow Jesus. We're not about making a, a nice social club of people who have a moderate faith. I want to see people ignited with passion for Jesus. I want to see this congregation be erupting with the fire and passion for Jesus. And it starts in our own hearts in this moment, laying down the areas of compromise, laying down the watered down nature of life, and just asking Holy Spirit to guide you into a life that is on fire for him. Just, I love John's testimony because it's not about one day he was trapped in all these things and in, in the heaviness and in the curses and the, all these different patterns. And then the next day I was completely free and walking in, you know, skittles and rainbows and everything was brilliant and bright. Hey, there are people that are actually brought into that dramatic of a salvation but there is also a walking out with Jesus into victory after victory. And as much as God is pursuing you, there is a pursuit of our heart that he is craving. Are we willing to meet him with our desire to pursue him, the desire for health and freedom, to take risk, to, 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 to let the Lord light us up on the inside and see the manifestation of that start to spill out. It's at the feet of Jesus. At the feet of Jesus. 
So we thank you, God, what you're doing in our hearts and our lives this morning. And I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that people wouldn't just feel like a moment of conviction, but they would actually, Holy Spirit, you bring the best conviction, but it's always to, to let us rise up in you. It's always to bring us out of the dark place that we've been in and into the light. And so I pray that you would do that in our lives, that we would walk out of any place of compromise, any place of death and destruction, and get back on the path of life by your power, that we would take you by the hand, Jesus, and that you would lead us on as we choose to follow you. We choose to follow you even within your heart right now. I choose to follow you, Jesus. I choose to follow you. Holy Spirit, would you seal that in our hearts and would the hours and days and months to come be one where we are pursuing you in your love and in your holiness. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.